Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj. Uh, I'm joined again by Jordan. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Arj. How are you this week? Pretty good. It's an exciting time. I've got an election coming. Indeed. Always, uh, always a lot to read about, and if you're a political junkie like I am, uh, it's, it's kind of cool. I'm, I'm half looking forward to it, half dreading it, if I'm honest. Fair enough. I, I can see I can see both sides of it. Um, but it does give rise to one of our talking points for today. We're going to talk about the use of social media platforms to deliver particularly targeted political advertising and how that's being taken up by parties, both big and small. But before we get into that one, first, our favorite tech startup is in the news again, Clearview AI, uh, which is the facial recognition software that has made a bit of a name for itself and amongst law enforcement as well. A lot of law enforcement bodies have used it. And uh, we've talked about it because of, you know, its various skirmishes with privacy regulators who have found that it's kind of run afoul of good privacy practice and so that's that's brought it to our attention but this week in particular we heard that Clearview AI is actually looking to launch a new venture verifying identity using facial recognition so obviously we know of the tool as being something that has been offered to law enforcement to use uh, to detect, you know, for example, people involved in child exploitation or, or people involved in terrorist activities. But uh, this is kind of the latest pivot. So it's a sort of new consent-based product. Um, and the idea is that, you know, organizations can use Clearview's algorithms to verify a person by their face. So, you know, a typical use case would be to validate a bank transaction or some other commercial purpose where, uh, it's less controversial maybe than, than some of the use cases we've seen. And, and as I said, this is kind of the latest pivot um, on the back of kind of offering it to law enforcement around child exploitation and detecting kind of people in, involved in criminal activity. But then even more recently, Clearview AI made a bit of noise in the press about how they were offering it to the Ukrainian military to help identify Russian soldiers. So like I said, it's to me, it looks like the latest throw of the dice this is a technology that's not without controversy and seems to be like looking for a nice home, you know, somewhere that, you know, we can all go, yeah, that's a good place to use this stuff because it hasn't been without controversy, even when it's been about finding people involved in child exploitation, even when it's about finding terrorists and even when it's about trying to um, support the war effort. So, you know, the, the latest effort now is, look, let, let, we're going to take it away from all of that and we're going to make it use for just help, you know, smooth smooth the friction that you feel in your everyday online lives for, you know, regular facial identification um, when you're doing a bank transaction. Uh, what, what did you think of it? Uh, look, you called it our favorite tech startup, which you might be forgiven for believing given how much, how often we talk about it, but I wish we could just stop talking about Clearview AI, honestly. Like, they manage to be in the news super consistently and often in the news for things that are, like, quite interesting that, that we do want to talk about. So, you know, I like them on that regard, but Oh, they're just, yeah, such a dodgy company. Their core product is built based on a totally illegal scraping collection of photographs about people, which, you know, has been ruled illegal in quite a number of jurisdictions now, Australia, UK, I think, Canada, Italy, a number of others. You know, so the whole 
premise of the business is totally illegal. And then there was a Washington Post article about them in February, right, that was based on a presentation they'd made to investors about this kind of pivot and the new business opportunities that are open to them in the facial recognition game. And they were citing the fact that you know, all of the other major players, your Googles, your Amazons, your Microsofts, had all backed out of facial recognition for law enforcement and how the fact that no one else is willing to do it for ethical reasons is is a great business opportunity for Clearview because it's a free market, which is quite a funny attitude to ethical concerns, you know. Yeah, and it's sort of reflected to me in that series of PR stories I mentioned, which is you know, how they promote the, you know, where their technology can be usefully used from, you know, countering child exploitation through to anti-terrorism, through to the war, through to, you know, it's just, you know, like a a product shopping for a a market gap, it feels like. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about that the other week as well, right? That they follow this kind of startup, move fast and break things kind of approach, right? That the imperative is to scale and to find a use and to pivot to a, a use for your technology, right? So, you know, they've scaled in their facial recognition trove. They've found a use in law enforcement, you know, and if they just move fast enough and keep pivoting enough, they can outrun this fundamental problem that it's totally privacy invasive, totally destroying of kind of individual privacy. And they've constructed this horrible surveillance apparatus and that they've constructed that surveillance apparatus on a basis that's totally illegal, being the trove of 20 billion images. Yeah, I I thought that was, you know, one of the interesting parts of this whole announcement, because I don't know if it's like a business strategic thing, but there was the kind of the quote from the CEO to say, you know, that this new offering is not going to be based on this massive trove that they've acquired. They're going to keep that for the law enforcement stuff, it'll just be the algorithm. And this idea that in their minds they can separate the algorithm from the trove, which is how the algorithm learnt and was trained up and developed into what it is, I think it's an interesting play because, as you say, there's a tight linkage in how this business is scaled up and how this algorithm is built up. There's a tight linkage with the practices that have led to it and it's not so obvious to me that you can separate it and and you know there have been regulators that have kind of called that out uh you know in, in other decisions that the sort of the algorithms that businesses build based on illegal practices or poor practices those algorithms themselves are tainted and should be destroyed yeah it's a really good point that that's a recent strategy the ftc in the u.s has been deploying that you're referring to right where they're you know in a few recent settlements of theirs they've been seeking the destruction of algorithms trained on or developed by illegally used data. So we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Weight Watchers FTC settlement, which, you know, there are all sorts of issues around illegal collection of data, around about kids and the Weight Watchers app for kids and young people. Part of that FTC settlement in that case was that Weight Watchers had to destroy any algorithms that had been trained on the data that they'd collected they had to destroy the data as well, but any algorithms trained, which is kind of a new approach for them. And I think is really interesting way of getting at the actual value to the organization. And you can see it in Clearview as well, right? Once they've they've trained their facial recognition algorithm, they can almost move away from the training data and probably in their minds, move away from these privacy criticisms and the privacy rulings, many of which 
you know, many of the privacy rulings against Clearview AI have required them to delete the images and face prints that they developed. You know, the Australian ruling requires that they delete the images and face prints that they'd collected about Australians. And I think other jurisdictions do a similar thing. So I think it's a really interesting tactic from the FTC. And it's, I think, really important to challenge that tech startup approach, right? The approach of, you know, ignore the law. So Uber did this as well, right? You ignore the law, you deploy your service in jurisdictions, even where it's illegal, you build scale in a defensible commercial position or a monopoly or an algorithm that other people can't easily replicate. And then you you try to move away, you pay your fines, you've got enough venture capital funding to pay your fines. So you move away from all of that and then you're left with your monopoly position or your algorithm and you can sell that and you can make your money. And so, yeah, so I think it's a really interesting kind of regulatory approach, right? The fines are not enough to disincentivize that behavior. If you can keep your monopoly, you can keep your algorithm at the end of it. So what you need to do is attack that profit, that that incentive to make the whole strategy no longer viable. Yeah, and I think it's particularly a, you know, maybe a welcome approach to be considering in that technology space and in the platform space as well, because... You know, the very nature of platforms in building up a platform is that you sort of, you build up this mechanism where you've got this mass group of uh, users on one side and a, and a mass group of, you know, advertisers or other uh, stakeholders on the other side. You create these platforms that benefit from network effects. And so if the, the way that you get to that network and that network effect is, you know, unprincipled, and you stop doing that, that's fine, but you've still got the lock-in. You've got these people locked into having to use a platform because all the other participants in their little middle mini economy sit within that one platform. So Facebook's a great example. Like, you know, Facebook has incredibly strong inertia for a user. It's really hard to leave because because of the network effects. And if they've created that pool to use that network based on practices that haven't always been uh, particularly savory, well... It's great that you can kind of influence and change and find for those practices, but if the fundamental model still exists, then it's it's not quite there. And, and you know, it, it also makes me reflect on a quote I read from law enforcement in how they think about Clearview AI or their usage of Clearview AI. And it was, I think it was in a New York Times piece, and it was something along the lines of the fact that, you know, the law enforcement officers were sort of asked about Clearview AI, and they said, look, we, we don't have a strong understanding or we only have a very limited view of how... Clearview AI works and, and who's behind it. But, um, you know, we've been able to use it to do these things, to solve these cases. And so I think that approach where you sort of can allow the, the, the way the technology is built to separate out from then the end outcome and the, of the product is problematic. I mean, it signals to someone like a law enforcement body to say, well, you know, I don't understand how it got to where it got to, but right now it works pretty well and why can't I use it? And I think, you know, that's that's problematic for the reasons we've discussed. It is, right. And it's something that people very often overlook, as, as you're saying in, in law enforcement, but in other contexts as well. People overlook the labour or the work that's gone into the data that underlies these AI systems. Like, you can only train an AI system on historical data that's been coded and and out analysed by a human. A lot of that labour is done by low-paid outsourced work or for free on a social media platform. And the labour that goes into that coding is hidden from this schmick AI product that then gets sold. 
and it's you know it's relevant for bias but it's also relevant for just the ethics of the system and how defensible use of it is and it's totally hidden by the tech i think that kind of links us to another related story that came well it wasn't a story it was a report put out by the australian strategic policy institute uh, by uh, Tegan Westendorf about the use of artificial intelligence in policing. And it goes to exactly the point you're saying, which is like we need to think about AI not just as a sort of a silver bullet product off the shelf that we can just buy and plug in and it works. It's actually a much more complex and nuanced process that relies on a very thoughtful and potentially even kind of an internal capability that you build within your law enforcement body to, to get the right outcomes in any case, I think it's good to talk about this because it sort of steps us away from Clearview AI specifically, who, you know, we have mixed feelings about. But this report gives us an opportunity to talk more broadly about the use of facial recognition technology and AI, generally speaking, especially by law enforcement. It was, it was a great report, I thought. My, my kind of key takeaways from it were that it acknowledges that there's a lot of promise in the use of these technologies. And that promise, we don't hear any shortage of, you know, from policymakers, from uh, you know, technology evangelists from the general media. We hear the promise side of things all the time when it comes to AI and facial recognition, but the report kind of makes the case that policymakers and users of the technology like law enforcement need to reckon much more carefully with the limitations, the actual functional and technological limitations of AI. At the end of the day, while it is sometimes put forward as a solution for human bias in policing context, it's sort of like this idea that you know, cops on the beat are um, inherently kind of got their own biases. And, you know, instead, if we could use something like an AI, not only could we minimize and neutralize bias, but also it'll be much more efficient and it can plow through a lot more data and information. What this report sort of makes the point of is actually many of those biases are inherent within the AI itself because they're built using the same processes and the same data that has the biases in them. So, it's not necessarily going to be without bias. And if anything, if you're using it over a much larger data set, you're going to amplify the amount of bias that get in your outcomes. And then the other kind of aspect of the limitations is around this sort of explainability. There's still, at the end of the day, a degree of black boxness when it comes to AI and understanding how it gets to the points that it gets to. And that's really critical in a policing context where you're making really fundamental decisions about you know, crimes being potentially conducted or not, and that explainability is not there yet. So there are real functional limitations to reckon with. Yeah, yeah, there are. And in addition to that, there's real good reasons for these decisions and these policing activities to be done by humans as well community-based policing and trust and relationships and, and human decision makers is a really important thing to keep. You know, you can't just replace that with a, a machine making a decision. Yeah, and the, and the report kind of, one of the outcomes that I liked sort of that was pinpointed at the end was this question of, you know, we should ask the question more often, why use AI as opposed to by default? You know, let's just think it's the right solution to every challenge. Yeah, exactly right. Now, so I I love this report. I started reading it with quite a good deal of skepticism. ASPE, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, is directed at kind of defence and law enforcement leaders. It's an independent think tank, but I was nervous when I started reading the report, particularly when it opens with, you know, AI promises great efficiency and benefits and so on. But it's an excellent report in... The 
the way it draws the attention to the challenges and limitations of these technologies and how, as you've said already, they're really not ready. First of all, you know, we don't have good solutions to the transparency and bias problems and they're really hard to deploy, right? They need a huge amount of work to deploy in sensible, reasonable ways. And they're often not the right solution. As you said, you know, we need to consider when not to use AI based on ethical, legal and net benefit considerations. It doesn't always add or help. And the report also really pushes back on our current policy settings and regulatory frameworks and, you know, the digital economy strategy and the national artificial intelligence ethics framework and the CSIRO artificial intelligence roadmap, it really pushes back on the tone of Australia's policy settings around AI, which is very much focused on, we talked about this last week, I think it's very much focused on let's adopt it, right? Let's get it happening. We need to drive adoption. We need to drive use. This report, as we've been saying as well, very much tries to put the dampener on that and say, well, let's actually think about whether it's useful. Let's focus on the limitations and potential negative impacts. And let's make sure if we are deploying AI, because yes, there is great potential benefit, let's maybe only deploy it where that benefit exists and where we can be confident we're not harming people. I thought uh, there was a fascinating kind of case study in the report that brought a lot of what we're talking about you know, really brought it home. And that was this example of Queensland Police's deployment of AI to um, identify potential perpetrators of domestic violence, which sounds like a nightmare scenario when, when you put it that way. But it was really fascinating because it was quite thoughtful how they went about it. So we are sort of trained to kind of think about AI deployment as like something you buy off the shelf from an organisation like a Clearview AI and then you just roll it out. And as we've discussed, that has inherent issues because we don't know how the AI algorithms have been developed. We don't know the data that they've been trained on and we can't explain how they're going to get to the decisions. And so in order to sort of mitigate some of those things, the way Queensland Police went about it was to essentially build the capability in-house, hire a bunch of data scientists, build the AI in-house trained the algorithm only on Queensland police data. So they had much more clear line of sight on what the data was that was informing the algorithm. And then they could also, in the same way, be more conscious and cautious about the biases that might play out in a Queensland policing context. And so they were able to get to an outcome that at least had some mitigation for those risks that we're talking about. Now, that is a really interesting kind of case study, as I said, because it It's a thoughtful approach of how do we bridge this gap between the promise of AI that can kind of make things more efficient, can do things in a much more kind of intuitive and learning way, but still attend to the fact that there are risks and be thoughtful about mitigating them. Yeah, and there are massive risks as well, right? It, It is really important to see that kind of thought going into a program like this by Queensland Police. Like it's such a risky area. There are so many potential negative impacts of over policing or going and knocking on a person's door. You, you want to be very confident that you are producing the positive benefit that you think you are with a program like this. So, I mean, I'm still quite frightened about the use of AI in this this kind of context. It, it, it makes me very nervous, but, but you're right. The report does provide quite a bit of reassurance in terms of that case study that at least the, the deployment has been considered and thoughtfully deployed. So. 
Let's move right on to our next story and the coming election. We wanted to talk about a ABC News article about micro-targeting of political advertisements. You know, it's not new. Micro-targeting's been around and an issue since, I don't know, 2016, probably before. And it's particularly an issue in elections, not just in Australia and the US and elsewhere. But the article is a, a good kind of intro and it's a good reminder in the lead up to the coming federal elections. So, so good to touch on. Um, so the article outlines the basics of how parties personalise their messaging based on the characteristics of the person viewing it. That could be things like demographics, age, gender, uh, whether you have children, or it could be your interests, uh, you know, the fact that you've clicked on a particular ad or signed up to a particular mailing list, or it could be about your location, you know, the fact that you're in a particular electorate. The results of that micro-targeting, the fundamental issue, is that you have different political messages being served to different parts of the community. And the ABC article points to one quite good example to illustrate this, which was just two versions of a Labour ad shown in Hawkesbury and in the Blue Mountains, which are nearby shires in the same electorate. Each ad was essentially the same, but they promise a million dollars in funding to, in the Hawkesbury ad, the Hawkesbury SES, and in the Blue Mountains ad, the million dollars is going to the Blue Mountains emergency service. So... It's particularly relevant, I think, in Australia and leading up to the election because political parties have a huge amount of data that they can use to develop and target these ads. They have access to data from the electoral roll, from voter interactions, and also from third parties where they can buy the data or scrape it off the internet. And quite importantly to this, political parties do not have to comply with the Privacy Act in Australia. So while other organisations would be limited in what they can use your information for, how they can collect it, who they can disclose it to. Political parties, in the context of political advertising, can do whatever they like. They don't have to give you a privacy notice. They don't have to have a privacy policy. They don't have to comply with any of the limitations that protect you when your information is being held by government or being held by a private company. So there's this combination of the impact of micro-targeting and having a different conversation with everyone, being able to tell everyone a different thing fueled by this total free-for-all lack of restrictions on how political parties are required to behave with the data that drives that micro-targeting that I think is a real issue. You're sort of seeing the before and after and it's sort of like how do political parties get to a point where they are able to be in a position to do this micro-targeting and that's kind of the before story and that's the that there is that exemption in the Privacy Act that allows them to gather this data and, and for us not to necessarily have that visibility and then the ability to then use these platforms to, to do the targeting. I mean, in a way, the example that was in the story, uh, I didn't have a, as much of an issue with, which was the sort of the, the example you gave about the funding for the, the emergency service in the two shires and they sort of tailored the message so that it said the name of the local emergency service so that the residents of that shire are going to see that one and then the residents of the other shire are going to see their emergency service and that to me was you know i guess a more efficient way of what some parties already try to do which is to just try to spin out kind of local spin-offs of every media release and every funding announcement but but it does get i think you're right like it does get challenging and it does get concerning when you start to think about particular kind of messaging and particular types of politics and policy that you know you know will 
resonate or you know will you know get, get the juices flowing amongst certain audiences because that's where you know as you say that fracturing you stop being able to see what's being told to different audiences i mean we were in this kind of election process which is by definition this kind of national level conversation about the direction of the country and what policy set we want and what we're seeing through micro-targeting is that there can be hundreds of different conversations happening in parallel all slightly tweaked and configured for a very small subset and a sort of very small audience and so like I accept that there's some efficiency outcomes around kind of being able to tailor certain announcements and the, the ABC article also talked about how micro-targeting is also particularly helpful for smaller parties, you know, because they don't have the money to do the big mass media spends. So I kind of get that, but but it is really problematic, you know, this idea that the conversation can, one, fracture, and then two, that it's not visible. So we don't know what claims are being made across the board because it's very hard, to, you know, you need to be almost in those niche audiences to see the message being served to them. And so it creates this like lack of transparency, creates this opaqueness. There was a U.S. Law and Policy Institute that wrote about micro-targeting leading into the recent U.S. election, and the headline of their kind of report was "A Lie Just for You in 2020." It was this idea that politicians who apparently have a reputation for lying, I'm told, um, can now craft lies on a very individualized basis, and the reason they can get away with it is because. It's so targeted that the scrutiny's not there. Exactly right. It's it's just whispering these lies in a person's ear while they're watching YouTube or scrolling Facebook. You can get away with a lot more in that context than you can, say, on a national broadcast. The same piece that I was talking about from the Policy Institute overseas described this advertising as a drive-by because it's like you kind of come in, it's quick, it's done, and then you move on and, you know, it's all quick and contained and done, but it has the lingering, you know, you do lots of them and it has a sort of a large scale effect, but it's so heavily localized. And it also made me think about like some of the scandals that we have had over the years when political operatives used to have these like pamphlets. They'd go letterbox with these false or spurious claims about, you know, a, a given local candidate to smear them. And it was something that, you know, they could get away with for the most part because the mass media, the mass population don't have visibility of pamphlets in letterboxes in local neighborhoods. It was only when, you know, one of those cases would come to light and land in the hands of a journal that it might get turned into a national level scandal. But this is like that at scale, you know, lots of, assuming they're lies. I'm not saying all of them are lies. I, I mean, some of this is just problematic, not not because it's a lie, but just because it's a conversation we should be having nationally. Yeah, and even if they're not lies, right, they're conversations that we're having independently, right? And so if we talk politics at the office, the conversation that you've been having through these targeted advertisements is very different to the conversation I've been having. Like, I think there's a deeper fracturing of just our ability to have a conversation about politics and it ties into this broader trend of you know identity politics and polarization in politics and filter bubbles and people being contained in their own little information world part of it's of their construction and part of it's being fed to them by these advertisements and so on and so we're all sitting in our little digital bubbles where we're surrounded by stuff that we agree with or that infuriates us and drives us to take action and so on i think it's a, a really worrying trend in terms of the quality of our democracy and the quality of public debate right it's i think it's such a great point 
because it's one thing that this targeted advertising means that I get ads about products that are relevant to me. Like it's one thing that I'm not seeing ads for motorcycle helmets because that's not relevant to me, but I see ads for tennis shoes. Great. But that that's one thing when it's about purchasing consumer goods. But as you say, when it's a national level conversation leading into an election, we should be at some level be able to have a national level conversation. And I should also have the option of being exposed to national level debates. I mean, okay, I own a, I own a home. I don't only want to get messaging around like economic policy and interest rates, you know, and what, what the government thinks about that or the opposition thinks about that. I should get exposed to the conversations about aged care or climate change or any of these, you know, that, that, that's how we kind of build our democracy is about those kind of collective national level conversations. But if, if everything's micro-targeted, I may not. And it's particularly, it's particularly problematic when we're talking about negative political ad- advertising as well. You know, if I'm getting targeted ads saying, you know, Arj and his political party are really against you, they're trying to take away your jobs and boot you out of the country or something, think about all the harm that Arj and his friends are trying to do to you. And you're getting the same advertisement about how I'm trying to wreck the economy or do something insane. You're advertising independently to each half of the country, trying to convince them that the other half is is out to get them. It can't have a positive net effect. Um, you mentioned transparency a minute ago as well, and worth noting that the um, ABC article is a bit of a plug for what I think is a really important research project, which is called the Australian Ad Observatory, which is run by a Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society. Long name, it's a big collaboration of academics and universities and industry partners and so on. Um, One of those projects is this ad observatory. So basically they want you to download their plugin, which will track your Facebook ads in your browser and send them data about what those ads are and how they're targeted and so on for their research purposes. So, you know, we were talking about how micro-targeting, one of the ways it's so harmful is the lack of transparency, the lack of access to the whole conversation. That's a, it's a research project that you can participate in that, you know, is squarely targeted at addressing that problem. It's just interesting to me also to sort of think about how this comes back to, um, conversation around privacy as well because it's not necessarily intuitive given we're sort of talking about broader democracy and how we have conversations but we sort of talked about how on the one side it's the sort of exemptions around political parties and how they gather data about us that enables the level of micro-targeting that's going on and then there's obviously the role of these platforms whose privacy yields have been well discussed but you know to me the other interesting part of it is also that we, we often talk about privacy in the context of, you know, the freedom to make choices for yourselves. And in a democratic society, the ability to make an informed choice at an election is the ultimate choice in some sense. And that choice is really hampered by not being able to see the full conversation. And we're creating this situation where these platforms are using our own data to limit the choice that we can make, or at least limit the extent to which we can be informed about the choice we want to make. So to me, again, that sort of ties back into privacy and, and our, like our freedom to sort of experience the whole conversation. To me, that's another really important consideration and something we have to think about more broadly, because I think, you know, we are having the conversation as it relates generally to privacy online, and we are talking about the creep factor of targeted ads, but it's 
does seem like a whole other category when you then start to talk about political messaging. Yeah, I think so. And fixing the political party exemption would be a good first step, right? Let's at least make them comply with the same law that everyone else has to comply with when they're doing this kind of targeting. But privacy is not all of the answer there, right? Regardless of what information it's based on, I think there's some questions to be asked about how political advertising works, particularly in this micro-targeted personalized world. You know, maybe there should be restrictions on how closely targeted political communications might be. I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting that not all of the big platforms do political advertising. So TikTok and Twitter both just have a flat ban on political advertising on their platforms. Yeah, and I think Facebook uh, suspended it like about a week before the last election. So, I mean, damage is already done, I suspect. But same sort of trend. It's like some level of concern about whether this is a good idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. There's the privacy side, you know, can you use the data for this? But there's also the like, is this activity even a good thing all in all? So, yeah, a few things to think about there, but no, an interesting one. I thought this was going to be rather a, um, a light on week, Arj, <laughs> but we've gone over as usual. Yeah, um, fun ones about our favorite, our favorite tech startup and AI and policing more generally. And yeah, and micro-targeting and, and the, the state of our democracy. It was, it was good fun and, and I, I think very timely considering we're, um, we're right into the, the throes of the campaign. Yep. Presumably, yeah, presumably an election will be called... By the time. By the time this goes live. Yeah. All right. Good chat. Let's do it again next week. Uh, good fun. Thanks, Jordan.